If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. Uh, and today we'll read from John chapter 6. We'll read from verses 35 through 40. But today we'll read John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. And you may be asking me the question, why are we revisiting a passage that we already talked about? The reason is, is because I had lunch with a brother in Christ at a restaurant that has taken my entire life savings. It's called Little Rosie's. Maybe you can join the club. And, and he basically just encouraged my heart to go back and slow down and look at John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. Because what we see here in, this, in these six verses is the truth of all truths. We see the relationship of the Father to the Son. We see the purpose that the Son came to earth. And then we see the choice that we must make. Notice it with me. This is John chapter 6, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you, the crowds, do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, which is explained further in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who believes the Son, believes in him, will have eternal life. And that I, myself, will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer, and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, we are uh, humbled at this message in your word. That you would come down from heaven, take on the form of flesh so that you would allow me to come and to spend eternity with you. And Lord, that you would hold me secure to the end. Uh, Lord, what, what manner of love is this, that you would come and that you would demonstrate your own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, I just pray for this morning that we would see ourselves through the lens of the Father and the Son, that we would see ourselves as you see us, and Lord, that we would uh, come to you and that we would believe in you as Savior, and Lord, that we would follow you to the ends of the earth. And Lord, I thank you for the message that we have of missions that we saw this morning that we have in the hallway. And Lord, I pray that that would not be a reason that we should not personally share, but Lord, that we would go with the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the end of our neighborhood, and we would share that you are the bread of life, that you're the provider and the satisfier of our soul. Lord, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for those tuning in online. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I want us to change perspectives. For weeks, we have unpacked in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. For weeks, we have unpacked how we should see Jesus, that he is God, that he is created, that he is Yahweh. But today, I want us to unpack how he sees us. This morning, I want us to view how he sees us, even if we are completely blind to it ourselves. I love the metaphor in the scripture of that God is our father and that we are his children. Because if you've ever had children, then you probably can relate to what I'm about to say. That as a father of young children, I, my children love me 
but I love them. That as a father of young children, they love me, but I love them. And as a father of young children, I often know their needs far more than they know their needs. As a father of young children, I can see often past the crying and past the tears and past the uh, irrational behavior at times. Parents can probably relate. We can see past those things and see the real need at the heart of the issue. For example, uh, this week, my two-year-old Olivia, if you know her, she is cute. I am biased, of course. Um, but she is full of spunk. But around 1 p.m., she gets a little cranky. And she really doesn't know why she's throwing a temper tantrum. She doesn't know why she's crying. She doesn't understand what is really going on. All she knows is that she does not feel well. Well, as her father, I'm able to look past her tears, look past her temper tantrums, and to see the real issue, the real need, that she needs a nap. But as her father, I know that she, I know her needs more than she knows her own needs. I know that she needs a nap, that she needs rest. But what happens at 1 p.m., right? If you've ever been a child, parent of a young child, you pick them up and you say, we're going to go take a nap. And what do they inevitably do? Okay, they kick and they scream and they throw a worse tantrum than before. She has no idea of the need really at hand. All she knows is that she does not feel well. This analogy is us and our Heavenly Father. That we oftentimes do not understand what we really need. We do not understand why we do what we do. And oftentimes spiritually that we are clueless as to the void that is in our soul that only God can truly fill. And that all we know as, as people, all we know is that there is something wrong, that there is something off. And that if we continue to ignore the real problem, then our souls will remain thirsty. But because God made us and because God is our Father, He is able to pierce through the tears, pierce through the surface exteriors of our beings, and He's able to look into our soul and into our heart and see the real need, that we truly need the gospel, that there is only one person that has ever come on the face of the earth that can satisfy my soul in the way that I am clueless to do so. This void, this, this gospel, this solution to the void in my life, to the hunger and the thirst of our soul is what we see in John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. What is the Father's solution for our thirsty soul? So with this in mind, if you have your Bible, turn once again to John chapter 6. And today, as mentioned before the scripture reading, we're going to revisit these five verses and take a little bit more uh, slow and methodical approach to this part of the bread of life. Now, if you were here last week, then you know John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40, comes in the middle of Jesus' sermon on the bread of life. But for the sake of this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. For basically the whole gospel of John, what have we been doing? We have been looking up at Jesus, trying to see him as he truly is, that he is the Lamb of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is God. But for this week, what I want to do is I want to turn and change perspectives. 
I want us to see ourselves as God sees us. Because I think then that we will have a different perspective on the Christian life itself. So what I want to do this morning is I want to very briefly look at the, this section and see Jesus for who he is. And then for the most part of our, my message today, I'm going to change perspectives and see how God the Father and God the Son view us. Notice who Jesus is in verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Notice that. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Who is Jesus? He is the bread of life. Now, what does that mean? Within the context of John chapter 6, what has happened earlier in John chapter 6, we know that Jesus took five loaves and two fish and he multiplied it to feed 5,000 or maybe 20,000 people. So here, in my opinion, this metaphor that Jesus is using as bread here means that he is the provider of life. Now, what do we understand life to be? Within within the gospel of John, what does John mean by life? It's more than just a ticket to heaven, but that Jesus is the provider of what? Of eternal aliveness, that through faith in Jesus Christ, that when I believe in him, that I will know for the very first time what it means to truly live. That as a broken and sinful human being, I was created to know and to walk with God in the Garden of Eden. But because of sin, because sin tainted my relationship with God, that now I have this broken relationship. But Jesus is the bread of eternal aliveness. That when I believe in him, that I will know for the very first time how I was meant to live and walk with God. That without Christ... Our hearts are impure, our minds are depraved, and our souls are worthy of death. Romans chapter 1, that without Christ, our hearts are impure, our minds are depraved, and our souls are worthy of death. And Jesus comes to the crowds in John chapter 6, and for the very first time, he says in public that he is God, and that Jesus is the solution for our thirsty souls. He is the solution for the soul that sin has tainted. So Jesus is the provider of life. He is the provider of eternal aliveness. But what else is he? Notice verse 37 through 40. And if you notice here real quick, this is kind of a rabbit trail on an exegetical level. If you notice, the verse that follows explains the previous verse. So verse 30, verse 40 explains 39, 39 explains 38, and 38 explains verse 37. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day and this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day Jesus is the bread of life. He is the provider of eternal aliveness. But what else is he? He's also the servant of the Father, that he has come down not to do his will, but the will of him who sent him. Now, who, what, what is the will of the Father for Jesus? 
If you notice the logic here is verse 40 explains 38, 30, 40 explains 39, 39 explains 38, and 38 explains 37. So what is the will of the Father? It's, it's explained in verse 40. It is twofold. That all those who would believe in Jesus would have eternal life. And that second, what? That Jesus would hold those souls secure until the last day. As mentioned in John chapter 6, verse 29, that the work of God is to save souls. And that Jesus would present to all life and that he would hold them secure until the last day. The work of God is to save souls, is the redemption of mankind. Let me put that in perspective. That God has arranged history and civilizations, that God has unfolded the story of the Bible, the redemptive plan of God that he has unfolded in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. That God, since the beginning, since sin was introduced in the Garden of Eden, the work of God is that He would present to all eternal life. That He would restore what was broken. That we broke. That God has created us in perfection and to walk in a relationship with Him. And God has worked throughout the Scripture and beyond for this one cause, the redemption of all. That He presents to us eternal life free of charge the work of God is the redemption of souls that he would pay for my sin through the blood of Jesus Christ and that my debt of sin would be paid and my soul is ransomed from hell and he gives it to me free of charge what is the will of the father for the son it is that all believe in him would have eternal life that is why Jesus must die and that Jesus would hold those who believe in him secure until the last day so how should we see Jesus according to John chapter 6 verses 35 through 40 we should see him as that he is the provider of eternal life and that he is the servant of the father but now for the rest of our time let us change perspectives we've we've, basically what i've shared this morning so far is nothing really new all right we've been talking about this since the beginning of john chapter one okay all right move on byron please okay so (laughs) let us just change perspectives for once how does god see us how does he view us as a good father notice what it says in verse 35 it's beautiful Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus and the Father sees that our souls are thirsty. That our souls are thirsty. That there is something, a void in our life that we cannot fill in amongst ourselves. I mean, why... If this were not true, if God the Father didn't see us as we are thirsty, that we are in need of redemption, then why did Jesus come? The reason he came is to redeem us from sin, that which is broken in the Garden of Eden. I mean, why else would Jesus, who is God, take on the form of flesh? Something flesh. I mean, think about the human body. It's gross. Amen? I mean, we have, these, we have dead skin cells that float around in a room called dust. That is nasty. I'm sorry if I gave you a bad image. But but Jesus came 
Because he saw that our souls were thirsty, he took on flesh, and he saw that we could not redeem ourselves. And that is what is implied in verse 35. Jesus sees the crowds in John chapter 6. He sees the 5,000 people. He sees the 20,000 people, probably including women and children. And he sees that they are physically hungry, but he sees so much more than just that one thing. But that as a good parent, as a good father, he sees past the external shell, and he sees the true need of the moment, even if we are ignorant to the fact that we need, that we need Jesus, that our souls are hungry for the gospel. And what? The crowds... The 20,000 people are completely blind to the message of the gospel. Because what do they do? They are fed in earlier in John chapter 6, and then they get in a boat and they row eight miles across the Sea of Galilee to, for more food, and they are completely ignorant and they don't really care about what Jesus is really there for. All they want is their belly to be full again. And if we are not careful, we as human beings can be just like them. That we fail to see what Jesus truly has come for. That yes, Jesus cares about our physical provisions, but he cares far more for providing for the redemption of our soul. So many times as Christians that we can come to Jesus, come to God only for stuff, for consumers type issues. But Jesus came to redeem us. Now, I know some of you are thinking here this morning, if you are not a Christian, then you may be asking me, and some of those tuning in online, some of you may be asking that you're kind of like the crowds, that you really don't see the root issue, that your soul really doesn't seem hungry or thirsty. And some of us think that even without Christ, we really don't have an issue. But I think if we really look deep down in our soul, that we would realize that there's something wrong about the human condition. Can I get an amen to that one? That there's something wrong about the human condition, that if we truly look inside of our soul, that we realize that there is something off. And, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a true saint, what do you think? That I would imagine if you're a true saint that you can look back on your life before Christ and see how Jesus Christ has satisfied your soul. That you may be physically hungry here this morning, but your soul is no longer thirsty. I would imagine those that do not feel like they really need Jesus as Christians, we can look at those people and say, No, you really do. You really do need Jesus. That He is the satisfier of our souls. As a good Father, as a good Creator, Jesus sees our thirst. He understands how sin has tainted us. He sees how sin tempts us. He understands how to save us, and He understands and sees our needs, even if we do not. Jesus sees our thirst, and then He sees something else as well. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, the provider of eternal aliveness. He who comes to me will not be hungry, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus sees our thirst and satisfies our souls. I want to make three different observations on this passage, on this particular, these two verses. Observation number one is that Jesus himself 
is the satisfaction of our souls. Notice what it says. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, not to us, but he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus himself is the satisfaction for our thirsty souls. Catch the implication of that. It's not the Bible. It's not being a good person. It's not earning our way to heaven. It's not something that I can do. It's not something that I, a pill that I can take. It is not the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus Christ who is the satisfier of our souls. But then observation number two, what is the requirement to receive Jesus as the bread of life? We've talked about this a, a thousand times when we go through the Gospel of John, but, but there's something different here. Wait a second. And, and I had lunch with a brother in Christ that pointed this out to me that encouraged me to talk about what is true faith. Because if you notice in verse 35, there are two phrases that basically say the same thing. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. That it, it, believe it or not, if you know this or not, every week before I preach, I read the original language and I just translate it. And in the original language, verse 35, these two phrases are working in what we would say is an apposition. Not opposition, but apposition, which means they basically say the same thing in two different, phrase, two different ways. So believing in Jesus is coming to him, that the two are synonymous. And as my friend talked about at, at Little Rosie's, which I said has taken my entire life savings, I don't want to know how much money I've spent there. But think about what our idea of faith often is. It is something that we mentally know. It's a mental ascent that, okay, I believe in Jesus, boom. But here in the text, when I see that these two phrases are in apposition, they're saying the same thing, that believing in Jesus is coming to him. When my child Olivia comes to me, what is she really saying? She is saying that she cannot solve the problem herself, that she has an inability to get her own juice or her own food. She comes to me how? Humbly, realizing her own need that she's unable to fulfill. I believe that is what it means to believe in Jesus. That it's more than just something that we know, it's more than a fact. But it is coming to Him realizing that we cannot satisfy our own soul, that he is the only one that could truly redeem us. That is faith. But then notice the third observation in verses 35. It says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Before I jump into this real quick, I, I find being a pastor in the Bible Belt to be quite difficult. I heard a, a pastor, I heard a sermon online this week, and he talked about an inadequate faith. And he said the story of how one guy who was in his church came up to him bravely and ignorantly, came up to him and said that I am a Christian because I live in San Antonio. <laughs> and I just kind of laughed like, wow, okay, I don't know what he's hearing down there. But that's an inadequate faith that he may know the truth. And I'll say this way, that being a pastor in the Bible is actually one of the most difficult places in all, probably the world to be pastor in, that does not receive persecution. Why? Because we all think we are saved. Because we know some kind of information, that we had some uh, 
emotive event that happened 30 years ago that we can't look back and we confirm that we were saved because of that event or because of a prayer I prayed or because a pastor told me I was saved. But none of those save you. None of them. How you are saved is that you come to Jesus in faith, realizing that you cannot satisfy your soul. But then notice here in observation number three in verse 35, if you have a pen, I would encourage you to highlight this, circle it, sharpie it, whatever you have to do. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Observation number three is the permanence and the sufficiency of Jesus' satisfaction. In the original language here in verse 35, what we cannot see in the English text is that in the original language, those words, those two phrases, he, will, he who comes to me will not be hungry, he who believes in me will never thirst, that, that never there, it, it is very emphatic. The negatives in verse 35 are very emphatic. Now, what do I mean by that? That the first phrase has two negatives, and the third phrase, or the second phrase, has three negatives. So let me translate that for you in the Byron version, okay? Which there is no such thing. John 3.35 literally says this, He who comes to me will not never be hungry. The one who believes in me will not never at no time be thirsty. Jesus' salvation is sufficient and it is permanent. Jesus' salvation quenches all my thirst. It saves me once and for all. Now catch that. Jesus' salvation not only satisfies my thirst, but it is a permanent and sufficient gospel. Why does that make sense? Why does it make sense that Jesus' gospel will cause me to never be thirsty and hungry spiritually again? Why does that make sense? Who is Jesus? He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just some guy. But who is he? He is God. He is the creator of all. No wonder his sacrifice is sufficient and it is permanent because he is God. He is the creator of all things, binding all things together and presenting to me salvation free of charge. His salvation is permanent and it is sufficient. Now, some of you may be saying, Byron, you know, I don't know. Some of you may be saying that I don't know on a theological perspective that his salvation is permanent. But some of you may be saying to me that, Byron, you know, I'm a Christian and and my soul still feels thirsty. And if your soul still feels thirsty, then there is a problem because as I read in verse 35, that there should be no such thing. So if you're a Christian and your soul, there still seems something wrong deep down inside. I would say that there's one of two problems going on. Number one is that you're probably not a Christian. I think sometimes in the Bible Belt, especially that we fool ourselves because we can tell an elder in the church the, the gospel that Jesus Christ died for my sins and I believe in him, I have eternal life, that we can repeat that phrase where we know John 3.16, that we are saved and none of those things save you. It is coming to Jesus, right? That if you still feel thirsty and hungry spiritually, if God has not satisfied your inner soul, 
And if you claim the cross of Christ, then you're probably not one of us. But then there's a second issue that possibly could be happening. The second issue is that sometimes as Christians, that we seek to satisfy our inner needs with sinful deeds. And we try to satisfy our inner needs with sinful deeds, leaving us hungry and thirsty because we're not tapping into the quencher of thirst to satisfy our inner belonging and inner needs. If you still feel thirsty, then ask yourself that question. Is it because I'm not a Christian or is it because there is sin in my life that I'm seeking to satisfy my inner desires and my inner needs? But then notice the final piece of this passage, verse 37 through 40. As I mentioned, 40 modifies 39, 39 modifies 38, and 38 modifies 37. Notice verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me will, I will certainly not cast out. Notice that he will receive all who come to him. For I have come down not from heaven to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus sees our thirst, satisfies our souls, and secures us forever. But notice here, Jesus tells us of his mission. What is his mission? For you've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' mission is to do the Father's will. So then what is the Father's will? Says it twofold in verse 40. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The will of the Father is to give eternal life to all who will come to Him and to hold them secure until the day of eternity, the last day of all days. Now, I'm going to talk about something, and I... Uh, this causes you issues, and okay, well, that's fine. That's part of life. Sorry, I'm going to talk about it anyways. Okay, sorry, that sounded really cynical. <laughs> Maybe it is. Okay, uh, so this is doctrine rolling around in churches. Not really this church, but there's a, there's a doctrine rolling around in churches that somehow, some way that we can lose our salvation. That if I stop believing in Jesus... That if, that if I was a true saint, if I truly believe, that somehow, some way, if I stop believing, then I can lose my salvation. Now, that's a pretty prominent doctrine in a lot of circles. But wait a second. What does the Scripture say here in John chapter 6, verse 40? That Jesus' will, that the Father's will for the Son is to hold us secure until the last day. So wait a second. So if I, if I am saying that I can lose my salvation, what am I really saying? Well, first off, that Jesus' sacrifice is not sufficient and permanent. But second, I'm saying that I am more powerful than God. Because here, Jesus is the Son of God. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. He is the one that holds all things together. And when I see John chapter 6, verse 35, that he who comes to me will never be hungry again, will never be thirsty, but my soul will be forever quenched, and that his job, the Son of God's job, is to hold me secure until the last day. 
When I come and I believe that I could somehow lose my salvation by either a lack of faith or losing my faith or by doing enough wrong things, what am I really saying? I'm saying that somehow I am more powerful than the creator God of the universe. I believe once saved, always saved. And my question is, is that if somebody walks away from the faith, if somebody believes and then all of a sudden does not walk and walks away for the rest of their life, I would probably struggle to answer the question, or were they truly saved to begin with? My point today is quite simple. I, w- I want us to see ourselves as God sees us, that we would change perspectives that we would see ourselves through the lens of the Father because Jesus, even if we're ignorant to it, just like the crowds, even if we have no clue that this is going on, Jesus sees our thirst, satisfies our souls, and secures us forever. The reason I say it that way is because sometimes as a Christian, we think God views us a certain way when He does not. I've seen, especially in conservative churches, that we think God only sees us through the lens of judgment and shame, and I can't be good enough. That somehow Jesus is standing on my shoulders and on my head, pointing to the sin that I struggle with, and reinforcing that I am inadequate, that I have guilt and I have shame for the sin that I struggle with. But... God knows that. God knows our inadequacies. God knows our sin. God knows what no one else does. Jesus knows the skeletons in our closet that we don't tell anybody about, the the, the sinful thoughts that we would not dare to share with anybody else. Jesus knows all these things. Why? Because he's God. He knows all these things. And what did he still do? He still came and he still died to satisfy my sinful thirst. It's not like Jesus didn't know it already. But sometimes that we are crippled by the sin that we have in our lives and we think that God somehow just is waiting for us to mess up and then he take a big old bat and slug us over the head. I think God is serious about our sin. I think he will judge it. But I think there's also an element of love. It's because Jesus, he came anyways. He saw all of the sins, past, present, and future. And he came and he still said, I love you enough to die for you, to pay for your sin, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Change perspectives. See yourself as God sees you. You don't have to live under the weight of guilt and shame. You don't have to live under the weight of feeling that you aren't good enough, and you're not. That's why the gospel is beautiful. My application for us this morning is application number one, if you have your notes, is if Jesus came to satisfy my soul, then will I find satisfaction in him? And that answer has two pieces. Will I find my satisfaction in him? If you're a non-believer, and if you're tuning in online, if you're checking our church out, if you've never trusted Christ, and if you are trying to find satisfaction outside of God, you will be let down. Can I get an amen to that one? 
that we as Christians if we, or we as people, if we seek anything else to satisfy our inner spiritual needs besides Jesus Christ, we will be let down. And we will just pile the sin higher and higher and higher, bearing underneath it a sense of inadequacy and a sense of thirst. If you have never believed in Jesus, that he has come to satisfy your soul, and then as a Christian, will you continue to find satisfaction in him? Will you continue? Not only your, your, your thirst, your spiritual thirst and hunger has been quenched. It's gone. It's done. It's permanent and it is sufficient. But will we continue to walk in relationship with Jesus Christ that it, we will continue to believe that? Because even as Christians, we, we, we feel like Jesus lets us down. God lets us down. We don't really like him anymore, so then we run to the nearest thing that we think will give us satisfaction. But will we as Christians not run to sin, but to our Savior to satisfy our inner longings? That's my first application. My second application is this, to take comfort in your security. To take comfort in your security. Now, I say this next piece very cautiously. I don't want you to have an emotive event today and you heard a pastor say once saved always saved which is completely true but what I don't want you to think is that because you did something 30 years ago or because somebody told you you were a Christian that you are somehow still secure even though you've never believed in Jesus Christ and guess what that's a recipe for it's a recipe for hell but that if you're a true believer if that Jesus has come and he has quenched your soul then be secure in that fact. Be secure in the fact that God will love you despite what you do in your sin. Now, he hates your sin. I'm not saying it is a license to do what you want, but that Jesus saw our sin and came anyways, and that he holds us secure into the last day. In college, at UAH, my freshman year, I struggle with this one thought that I should take comfort in the security of my salvation. I remember as a young man, I remember searching the scriptures and seeing the arguments on both sides, that I could lose it, and then I could gain it, and then I could get came to the inevitable conclusion, both theologically and biblically, that I cannot lose it. And guess what happened? I felt for the very first time that I was completely secure in the salvation of Jesus Christ. That is what I hope for you. What does it look like to change perspectives, to see ourselves as God sees us? If we truly were to look at John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40 through the lens of God and our Savior, then we will no longer be afraid to approach our Father who knows our real condition. We will no longer be afraid to come before Him and ask for forgiveness of our sins. That we will no longer see ourselves through the lens of guilt and shame. That we will no longer feel insecure about our salvation. But if we see ourselves as God sees us, then we will see that our relationship with God is how we are meant to live. That we are meant to live in a constant relationship with Him. That we are meant to find our satisfaction and our redemption through Jesus Christ alone. The gospel 
the good news of Jesus Christ has been sprinkled and peppered and salted around all this sermon all over the place. Uh, it has been talked about. And how could you avoid it when you do John chapter 6? But just for the sake of clarity, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ, then your soul is thirsty whether you want to admit it or not. You need something that only Jesus Christ can offer you. And then if you will come to him, realizing that you have an inadequate ability to save yourself, and if you would believe and trust in him, that he will give to you eternal life and eternal satisfaction that is permanent and that is sufficient. Will you come to him humbly, realizing that you cannot save yourself, and will you trust in him as your savior? The choice is yours. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Oh. Lord, uh, what an what a, what a awesome and crazy story. That you would see my sin and that you would come anyways. That you would, that you would live in perfection and perfect harmony with your Father and with the Spirit. And that you would come, take on flesh to die for me so that I would never be hungry again. Uh, Lord, what a magnificent God that, that says to imperfect people that you cannot earn your way to heaven, but that instead of you coming to me, I came to you to die on a tree, on an object of humiliation, to be the payment of all sin. Lord, I, I, I don't think I understand the magnitude of that even after 30 years or so of being a Christian. Lord, I pray for those that do not know you, that they would find you as, as their satisfier, that they would see their thirst. And Lord, I pray for the Christians, the, the true believers in here that, that have been redeemed, Lord, that they, that they would believe in you constantly, that they would come to you constantly with their needs and, and, and searching for the satisfaction of their emotional, spiritual, and physical needs. And Lord, that they would not run to the world or the sin that so easily entangles us, but they would lay aside their encumbrances and they would run the race that is set before them. Lord, I thank you for all the people that are here. I thank you for those that are tuning in online. Lord, I pray for safety as many people are traveling back from Thanksgiving vacation here today. Lord, I pray for protection as people uh, are from COVID and the ailment that that is. And uh, Lord, I just pray that we would trust you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.